Потом что мама есть? Моя мама любит Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. We are in our Mythbuster series and this week we are going to be diving into why the BMI scale is outdated, harmful, and shouldn't be used to assess our health. We have covered this topic pretty extensively back in episodes four and five titled Your Weight Part 1 and Part 2, but today we are going to recap a brief history of the origins of the BMI scale and then bust the myth that BMI is an effective tool for measuring our health, and we're going to be busting that with Dr. Jeff Hunger. Yeah, so we are going to link a very thorough article of the history of BMI written by your fat friend in our show notes. But here are a few brief highlights pulled from this article and others. Bottom line is the body mass index, the BMI, was invented nearly 200 years ago. Its creator, Lambert Adolphe <gasps> Jacques Quitelet, nicknamed oh. Lammy. By us in season one, (laughs) uh, was an academic whose studies included astronomy, mathematics, statistics, and sociology. No? No health? Yeah, that makes sense. No health. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So during this time, what was basically going on in history was that there were studies being conducted in race science and eugenics, aka they were trying to prove that white bodies were superior to all other bodies, especially to black bodies. So the original index was created by studying a small group of white European men and then creating a tool that measured their fitness in order to categorize the population and prove that white males were a superior species. The bottom line is that BMI was never intended as a measure of individual body fat, build, or health, or to be inclusive to different genders and races. It wasn't until as recently as the 60s and 70s that money began to get its greedy little claws in health. Insurance companies wanted to know how quickly to measure someone's health in order to figure out what to charge the individual. Oh, okay. (laughs) So how can you measure health quickly? Well, by calculating height and weight. Not true, but that's what they're doing. And again, though, as they began to consider this measure to be accepted globally, studies were conducted, most famously by Ansel Keys, who you hear us reference in our interview. But these studies, again, were to compare populations, not to predict health in specific individuals. 
And then in 1998, the terms quotes here, overweight, quotes, and quotes, obese, entered the scene. The BMI ranges were lowered. And overnight, many, many people were suddenly told that their height and weight ratios were considered dangerous. And guess why? Well, because now insurance companies can save millions of dollars by not allowing people to be considered for higher premiums or packages due to their body size. Right. So once again, the bottom line is that BMI is just not an accurate measuring tool, nor is it a reflection of health. And it continues to uphold the white thin body as superior and all other bodies as unhealthy and morally inferior. So we're going to dive way more into the problems of BMI today with Dr. Jeff Hunger. All right, so he is an assistant professor in the psychology department at Miami University. As a social and health psychologist, his research uses insights from psychology to understand and ultimately prove the health of stigmatized groups. Much of his research has focused on the health consequences of weight-based stigma and discrimination. You can read more about his work at jeffreyhunger.com or find him on Twitter at Dr. Hunger. All right, let's bust this myth. Today, we are excited to welcome Jeff Hunger to help us figure out what is going on with the BMI, should we take it into consideration, and just breaking this down. So welcome to this week's episode, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Could you share with our listeners who you are and why you're so passionate about busting this myth? Yeah, so I am uh, an assistant professor in social psychology at Miami University, the one in Ohio, the cold one, not the one in Florida. There's often a lot of confusion there. there. (laughs) Yeah, don't want people feeling like they need to come visit me and thinking it's going to be this warm destination. It is not. Um, and so I, most of my research is really at this interface of social psychology and health, um, focused specifically on how, you know, being a member of a stigmatized group, like being heavier, you know, being a racial or sexual minority impacts health. Um, how I kind of got interested in the, this myth of, of BMI is because of the work that I have done in weight stigma, you know, very frequently we get the pushback for any of our work that shows really clearly that weight stigma is bad for health, then of course, maybe it's not weight stigma. Maybe it's just that heavier people are more unhealthy and they also happen to encounter weight stigma more. And so we kept getting this thrown at us time and time again. And we always would rebut it. And then eventually we started to get in the business of like diving into the data on it too. And so it really came from a a place of uh, intense frustration of like constantly having folks tell me that BMI is what's driving, you know, all of these effects and that BMI is a good predictor of health when once you actually dive into the data, it's just not yeah. true. I mean, Rachel and I are always going back to our history of Lammy since Lammy, uh, that's what we've nicknamed him. I forget his full name, but the human that uh, originally developed uh, BMI and used it for population trends and all of those things. So we often curse out Lammy. Damn you, Lammy, <laughs> for inventing this thing that we constantly have to keep 
debunking. But with that being said. How did you get to Lammy? His name's like Jacques Lambert or something. Francois something. We just gave him a nickname. Gave him a nickname because we can't remember that so we can remember Lammy. (laughs) However, our history. We're just changing history. (laughs) Our history knowledge around this, you know, is surfaced. And so... We would love to come to the expert, uh, the research guru. So, and that is you. Hey. Um, so, Hello. can you tell us a little bit more about what you know about this hit, this myth's history or origination, in addition to Lammy? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think it's Lammy. It might be. Oh. I think. It's, I think it's. Uh, if I recall, mm-hmm. his last name is Quetelet. Yes. Uh, yeah. His but his first name, name is Lambert is or something. Lambert. Oh, okay. So then that actually makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, this was basically developed from, you know, this person that was a statistician, a mathematician, a physician, all these things that are, you know, apparently you can have like 16 jobs in early 1800s Belgium um, or be an expert in all of those. And, you know, he was really interested in sort of understanding the general range of like white men in 1800s Belgium. Like if, if my understanding of it is correct, like that is one of the origins of what used to be called the Quetelet index, index. And it wasn't until like, I think the maybe 50s or 60s that Ansel Keys brought it into the nutrition literature, uh, renamed it body mass index, and it you know positioned it as potentially an indicator of health and it kind of caught fire. So maybe we should be cursing Ansel Keys and not Lambie, even though Ansel Keys did one of the most famous, I don't know if it's the most famous, but to me, it's been a resourceful research of the key study where, you know, they measured and uh, researched these starved individuals. Um, What's but, the one of the most, the one of the wildest things about the, the Minnesota starvation study? Thank you. That's Keys. the name How of it. unethical like, it is. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, well, so actually... <laughs> Actually, Rachel, like the starvation diet is only 1,600 calories. I know. I know. I saw that to my clients all the time. We put people on much lower calorie diets and we don't call it starvation. Right. Yep. Yeah. I always give that that handout to my clients and I'm like, read the whole thing. And at the end, I'm going to tell you how many calories these people were on and you can let me know. And they are, their minds are just so blown. It's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe uh, Lammy and Ansel can both be the ire of your, yeah. uh, you know. There we go. So, I mean, okay, it's obvious to me, it's obvious to us, let's say, why BMI is ridiculous and not helpful to use as a health marker. But in your eyes, Jeff, why, why do you see it being an unhelpful tool and a harmful tool? Yeah, so I think it's most certainly uh, unhelpful because it's, it's, you know, to think that we could capture a, a person's health simply by scaling their height against their weight is just ludicrous. Like, but that's what drew, I think that was what drew people to it. Scientists, clinicians, public health folks was this, like, we, we want simplicity. We strive for the easiest way to categorize people as X, Y, or Z. And so if we can do that by putting two numbers into an online calculator, boom, you know, we want that. It's also cheap. So people were driven to it because it's cheap. And 
health insurance folks, doctors, all these, you know, different stakeholders were invested in this outcome, or excuse me, this measure, because it was supposedly this cheap, widely accessible way to tell people, you know, healthy people from unhealthy people. And it doesn't, like when you look at the actual data, um, BMI is not a good indicator of underlying cardiometabolic health. It doesn't seem to be uh, the predictor, it doesn't seem to predict um, increased mortality, which is like the hardest of health outcomes, uh, you know, dying. Um, and if anything, the most recent data suggests that people that are in the overweight and quote unquote, these are all in air quotes, folks, um, the quote, quote unquote, overweight or obese categories actually live longer. So like it's, it's doing, it's doing damage for a few reasons, like one, or it's uh, harmful for a few reasons. One, it's, it's just perpetuating this inaccurate sort of myth that folks that are thinner, folks that are lower on the BMI are going to be inherently healthier. And folks at the other end of the distribution are going to be inherently unhealthy. And it's harmful because it does two things. Well, one, it furthers and perpetuates stigma associated with higher body weight and, you know, gives credence to the stigma that, you know, these folks are unhealthy. And so maybe they should be stigmatized because it's for their own good to enact behavior change and, and, you know, get thinner so they'll be healthier. But then also it does a disservice for folks that are thinner, but at the underlying physiological or cardiometabolic level are a disaster. So if people think, well, I'm skinny, so I must be healthy, they're probably going to be just as like less likely to, you know, go get preventative care. They might think that the behaviors that they're engaging already are fine when it turns out like working out twice a month isn't the ideal way to go about it. Um, you know, you could be a little bit more physically active than that. Um, and so it kind of forks people. I won't use my, my swear words on this because you know how much I like to swear, Tina. We do use disclaimers, but yes. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it kind of uh, does everybody a disservice across the weight spectrum. It, uh, you know, obviously it really impacts um, fat people because it further marginalizes, further represses them, but it definitely underserves folks that are thinner as well. I just... I had the privilege of being able to sit in on this uh, med student class. Um, it was a class on weight stigma and I was a guest moderator, right? Like weight stigma being taught to med students, like amazing. Where was this? I know, right? Uh, so local here, but um, I was a moderator and we basically I was giving supervision. That That's what it really felt like. And... I was really impressed because even though a lot of the students were stating very fat phobic um, language, they were really open to learning because they could recognize that what they've been taught and how they have been practicing in their rotations and uh, residencies, they were all at different levels, but um, it was actually causing harm. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about weight stigma? Because I think maybe individuals listening may not really understand what that truly means. Yeah. So one, I'm glad to see that this is being taught in the medical setting and that people are interested Hopefully in it. more. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, language hiccups and the ways that we talk about these things are going to happen. But if you are truly intrinsically motivated to learn more, that's step one. That's job one. And you're going to have hiccups with the languages that you use to talk about weight and health, the languages that you even use to talk about fat bodies, because not everybody likes to talk about weight that way. They may say higher or lower body weight, you know, so that's just great to see that that's happening. 
I mean, in terms of weight stigma, when we talk about this, at least, you know, from a social psychology perspective, we're talking about these negative stereotypes, the prejudice and the discrimination or the, you know, the biased treatment that higher body weight individuals face in societies that tend to look down on fat people. And, you know, it's becoming harder and harder to find a society that doesn't, but, you know, especially in, in U.S., um, we live in a, a very fat phobic society. And so these stereotypes about being lazy, being uninterested in their own health um, are really used to, to justify and um, prop up really rampant discrimination that higher body weight individuals face, you know, across, you know, education, um, employment, all steps of the hiring and firing process, um, all sorts of places in the, in the encounter with the healthcare system. Um, and yeah, and this, uh, what's worrying is that this discrimination has increased in sort of an unabated way for the past 20 years. So we're seeing very, very high levels of, you know, over 40% of higher body weight individuals reporting some form of weight-based discrimination. Yeah. So when we are basing our health off of BMI, right, and someone sits at a higher BMI naturally and Every single time they're going into the doctor or getting an assessment of some sort, every little inch of everything is blamed on their BMI and their underlying, their, their main reason for coming in is brushed off and just said, just lose weight. It's harmful, right? It's not actually giving these individuals equality to their healthcare, to their, their bodies deserving appropriate care, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Two things come up. One is there's this fantastic comic that uh, I use in some of my talks where it's this fat woman that's got, that's impaled with a, with a steak. And the doctor says, well, I think maybe you just need to lose a little weight. Um, And it's, 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 it's a little bit of gallows humor, but when you study terrible things for a living, you kind of need that sometimes. Um, But the other thing is, Think about how the exact same ailment would be treated if a thin person came in with it. If a thin person walked in the door and said, hey, doc, I've got a f***ed up knee. And I, you know, it happened, excuse my language. Um, it, it happened, you know, while I was working out. They're probably going to say, you know what you do? You should probably just lose a little bit more weight. And then you're going to all of that, that, that weight and that pressure and that deterioration that you're putting on your knees, you're going to be fine. If it's a thin person, here's a PT, let's, let's figure out ways to make sure that you're exercising properly to, you know, protect your ACL. Like it, all you have to do is think, how would I treat this person if they were not at a higher BMI? If it's not the same way, I'm not rooting my diagnosis. I'm not rooting my treatment plan in the best medical practice. I'm rooting it in my weight, my own weight bias. I'm rooting it in my own erroneous assumptions about what a fat person is or isn't. I mean, I think that's bringing up the concept of thin privilege too, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But I know I I experienced the thin privilege when I slipped a disc in my back and went to my doctor and they're like, how did you slip a disc? I'm like, oh, I was sitting on the floor, like nothing even special. And I knew, and immediately, oh, okay, well, here's your PT, here's a go. I'm like, I know. I know that if I was in a larger body, someone would have said, oh, see, sitting on the floor because of the weight distribution in your hips. I don't know, whatever they would say, but they would have blamed it on my body. So it absolutely, I know, happens. Um, so for the, I'm going to throw this out there. For those who are listening, but they're not quite yet convinced, 
I'm going to throw out a devil's advocate question. Is there ever a time when the BMI is a helpful tool or should be taken into consideration? It's probably a good indicator of the negative social treatment that people get. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's like it's a good proxy. If the only proxy that we have for the weight stigma they're encountering is uh, their BMI, then yeah, it's probably a decent proxy. Correl it correlates moderately. Uh, I know that from my own data. In the health context, I would say no. I would say no. There isn't like there's uh, there's no good evidence to show that sending out BMI report cards to kids makes them lose weight. There's no evidence to suggest that you know, routine screening and surveilling of BMI does anything to improve health behaviors of higher body weight individuals. Like it does nothing. It's, it, it persists. It persists, even though it has no like true value. Right. I, ha I have a friend who has a friend who is a doctor, a pediatrician, and um, recently told us that um, they are going to have to start talking about um, obesity and BMI in these pediatric appointments because insurance is requiring it for well visits for children. Aww. And, you know, you know, this individual is like, what the heck? I'm like, Ugh, I know. And so how I would guide it for parents, parents listening, okay, these doctors unfortunately are shackled to the funding of insurance, right? Like, that's how they get paid and that's how you get this free visit, right? If you have insurance. So to me, I would guide the parents and say, please ask the ch child to leave or can this conversation be had on the phone without my child present if your kid can't go sit in the waiting room by themselves. But this is not an appropriate discussion to be had in front of a child or really anybody, but... Um, we don't want to be, you know, shaming and creating more weight shame, weight stigma at such a young age. And so ask the child to leave. Do do a small bit of decency to that kid's, you know, self-esteem and ask them to leave the room. Yeah, I love that. I was going to hop in and suggest that very same thing uh, is, you know, my guess is insurance companies don't require the kid to be present. They require the doctor to say it. Um, and the doctor can say it to whomever they want to, uh, because yeah, like you said, that that's just going to be doing undue harm to the kid. And cause there's also all of this data. I just saw another new paper that only like 30% of the kids that are at the, you know, the high end of the BMI distribution during early, early adolescence are still there in late adolescence because bodies are changing at different times. They are literally growing humans and to be like, oh, now is the time that we need to intervene because this is a crisis is just so misguided and does not reflect anything that we know about the data. And if anything, that intervention itself is likely to lead to more kids being heavier across time because we know that weight stigma from my lab and from others actually causes weight gain. We know that putting people on or kids on restrictive diets or, you know, you know, encouraging them to engage in what are otherwise unhealthy weight control behaviors equally makes people gain weight over time. And this is the thing that blows my mind is like, I will shout down someone until the end of the day about weight being an indicator of health. But even if, even if you, I conceded that point, I will never concede that point. Um, 
all the shit that you're doing is working completely against your, your purported end goal. If your purported end goal is to make kids lose weight, shaming them and putting them on restrictive diets is not the route. Like, again, I'm never advocating for these things, but it's like for the folks that want to be in that, you know, camp, have a little bit of reflection on like, you're literally engaging in processes that are counter to what your supposed goal is. I think my flip side question a little bit is what about folks who are on the lower end of the BMI? Where I see sometimes this come up as well in eating disorder treatment is, you know, people are on board for scoffing the measures of the BMI and they will preach weight stigma. But the second we have someone come in who is very underweight and very malnourished, all of a sudden now they're toting the BMI and saying, well, your BMI is so low and this. And and I'm thinking, can you selectively choose when to use the BMI? That doesn't also feel fair. Or even kids, I know I've had friends whose babies had maybe some feeding issues or complications and they were in the lower BMI. And therefore, suddenly that was a constant measure for trying to get them out from that end. So I'm just curious if you've done any research on also that that side of things. So I haven't personally done any research on that side of things. I know some of it does exist. Uh, but I mean, being at the lower end of the BMI distribution can tell, tell us a few things. It can tell us just like at the top of the BMI distribution, they might just naturally be lower in weight, but it could, you know, prompt a healthcare provider to ask the parents, like, are you having latching feeding issues? Are you having issues with pickiness that we know lead to malnutrition and undernutrition? Are you seeing your children exhibit disordered eating behaviors? Or for so many more people in our country right now, are you food insecure? Are you dealing, is your family personally dealing with issues of food insecurity, which not only contributes to undernutrition and malnutrition, also contributes to disordered eating? Because imagine if the source of, of food is now sporadic and a function of when resources or food becomes available, that fosters all sorts of unhealthy relationships with food. And even once folks exit food insecurity, it still kind of can bake in some really unhealthy relationships with food. Yeah, I coming from kind of the dietitian perspective, it, if someone's, whatever their BMI is, whatever their weight may be, we're using it as one angle, one tiny piece of the puzzle, right? And so if someone is showing like, oop, you've lowered off your curve or oop, you've bounced up on your curve. Let's just watch it. Let's get more information. Let's build the rest of the puzzle. But if we're, what we're saying here to bust this myth is that we're not using that one puzzle piece to say that, oh, this is the whole thing, right? We're using one tiny bit of information to then build the rest of the puzzle and gain that information so we can truly treat the human sitting in front of us versus judging someone based off of their body size, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna flip it to an angle. Um, we, we've kind of been touching on it regarding kids, um, but I wanna flip it onto the parents a little bit. So. You know, we always are coming back to the space of like parents doing their own work first, right? So that ultimately we're not spreading the 
family diet legacy or we're not continuing to do harm. So what would you say to parents out there listening in for ways that they can support themselves so that this this language, this stigma, this diet mentality, this fat phobia isn't being passed on to their children? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And it's also, uh, do you have time for a therapy session? That's basically, yeah, uh, yeah right? it's, like... <laughs> uh, it's, it's a fantastic question, but it, a lot of it is, you know, having to undo the 30, 40, 50 years that these parents have of having lived under sort of this fat phobic society that really prioritizes one body over the other. And so it can start by just recognizing your own biases and recognizing the ways in which, you know, these, you know, this system of anti-fat bias might be shaping the way that you feel about your own body and might be shaping the way that you, you know, do or do not engage in eating certain foods or just really trying to recognize. So why am I doing this? You know, why am I engaging in this behavior? Am I working out six days a week because I'm terrified of gaining weight? And if so, why am I terrified of that? Like, why, what is, what's at the root of my fear of weight gain? Is it that I truly think it's going to change my health? Or do I really think that it's going to change my sort of position in the social world and know that what comes along with being heavier, you know, is stigma and discrimination and shame. And yeah, a lot of it is, is working to undo the sort of the internalization of these things that has built up over the years of, you know, before you were a parent. And this is one of the, um, the biggest challenges is like, uh, we see weight bias in kids as young as three. Like we see this starting early. So this is not, this is not the parent's fault. They, they, this is not something they actively chose into. They didn't select into this cultural system. And to get parents to realize that if you slip up, it is, it is, you know, you need to be putting in the work, but it's, it's not your fault, but also reflect on, reflect on the ways in which you interact with or talk about your body in front of your kids. Like, is that snack a guilty pleasure? Or do you just want to have something tasty because you know what we like? Occasionally we like things that are sweet and delicious. Um, how we frame our interactions with food or how parents may inadvertently make comments about their own weight in front of their kids can have a lasting impact on how that does get translated. And so just trying to cut off those conversations early and shit, like you said, like go to like therapy related to these things, like fixing your, fixing your relationship with food, you know, finding a more intuitive, uh, uh, intuitive eating approach to how you engage with food and your body is going to be super helpful but then also beginning to be a little bit more critical about all of the messages that we take in about what is or isn't a good body. If we can start to be resistant to those, those messages as a parent, uh, as a family member, we can really help to equip our kids with the ability to do so when they might not have the language or the, the, the um, strategies or the forethought to be able to do it. I love the questions you're asking like the journal prompts we like to do in in our podcast because I think the concept is people simplify it to go let me just lose the weight and let me just shift my BMI and you're going hold on a second 
let's go back to the drawing board and go, what was your relationship with food? What was the modeling in your home? What's your family history? What's your food access? What's your resources? Like it is so complex to help people find peace with their relationship with food and with their body. And it's not just going to be counting things or lowering numbers or shifting anything. There's so many medical, psychological aspects to it all. And there's also even data out there because that's where I'm always going to return to because I'm a big old data nerd. Yes, please. There's even some data out there to suggest even when folks lose weight, which when it happens, it's, you know, it's challenging, but when it happens, it happens. They don't seem to shed those feelings of weight stigma. And so all of your solutions all or all of your issues, all of your problems are not solved by dropping those pounds because then instead of focusing and obsessing on lowering that that number on the scale or that number on the BMI now it's a game of I have to protect this number you know with my dear life like I need to make sure that I never creep back up on this number and so that becomes the new obsession the new intrusive thought the new thing that fucks your mental health up it, that uh you know undermines your well-being it just Losing weight is never going to lead to some like Narnia where you have, you know, access to live your free life. Or once you hit that level on a dress, you can like finally find the person that you want to love you. Like there's, there's, there's not this end of the uh, rainbow. There's not this golden pot at the end of the rainbow that, you know, is weight loss. It's just a new pot full of yes <laughs> bullshit and not gold coins. Yeah, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve the underlying initial issue which we all have issues with food. We're all trying to figure out a relationship with food, right? Like it's complicated. So it doesn't solve anything. When this comes up in the home, especially when it's brought up by the child, this is what I've learned in school or this is what's going on in the playground. How do you advise parents to maybe have this conversation using kid-friendly terminology so that this myth can really be busted in the home? Yeah, again, another challenging question because it you have to meet the kid at where their level of thinking and their level of language is. And I think the easiest, it's not easy, um, but I think the, the most direct route is having conversations about diversity with your kids. Like folks come in all shapes and sizes. Our, some of our skin looks different. Some of our hair looks different. Some of our bodies look different. And these differences exist and we should be embracing them and not using them sort of as a basis to shun or other or, you know, tease kids. And that, that can be challenging because, you know, when you're a young kid, part of it is wanting to fit in. And so if you see that, uh, you know, the group of people that you want to fit in with is, you know, teasing someone, there's probably the inclination to follow the crowd to either avoid being teased yourself or to get on their good side. And it just really, it starts with very early on exposing folks to, or, or kids to, to diversity of all kinds, including body weight. Because mo more often than not, what kids are teased for on the playground in, in elementary school and middle, middle school is weight. It tends to, it tends to be weight and race are the, the, the primary targets of, you know, school-based bullying and yeah, it's, 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 I wish I had a more like definitive or a, a more firm answer, but it really is getting, getting our kids as early as possible to appreciate diversity in all of its forms. And I say early, cause as I said earlier, this shit can get ingrained as early as three to four years. And so having, making sure that the, 
representation that they have in their books. Like I, uh, we chatted about earlier, like is showing diversity in body types, you know, across all sorts of body dimensions that the toys our kids are playing with are not inadvertently sort of reifying the thin privilege or the, 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 the thin idealization that all their toys aren't just like these stick thin princesses or um, these hyper-masculine, overly muscular GI Joe kind of types, you know, being critical of what the toys, the media and the spaces that our kids inhabit is telling them, even if it's uh, kind of implicit. And that's, cause that's why fat phobia, just like racism and sexism and homophobia is so insidious. It's cause it gets baked in and caked into things where you just don't notice it because it becomes the default. We don't see the default unless we are actively looking for it and trying to sort of dismantle it. Like if we don't notice that the only dolls our daughters or sons are playing with are thin white women, it's going to be hard to counter those as being sort of the glorified social categories in our kids' lives. And so really doing the sort of the social justice work from an early age, like it's it's never too early to have a conversation about diversity and difference with our kids. It, you know, of course, developmentally tailored, but something as simple as, you know, the book, I like myself, uh, which I really love. Um, and I'm sure we can probably put in the, the, the notes, um, does a fantastic job of doing this at a like very young age, a young level. You know, it's one of those um, hardcover books that I feel like is like, ready to get spilled on, uh, chewed on. And, you know, so it's like probably like a three and four year old level book. Um, but there's- They're called board books. Board books, thank you. I See, this is where my non-parent knowledge is like That's falling. Right. I have too many children. Oh. Um, but yeah, so I think, yeah, just engaging with these things as early as possible and really trying to support uh, our kids having a diverse social world. Right. I always guide parents like, because a lot of times they're like, okay, we're doing that work. We're having those conversations. And then let's say we're out in public and all of a sudden my kid screams out, mom, that kid's fat, right? And then parents want to go, shh, 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 no, 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 don't call people fat, right? But instead I encourage parents to be like, oh, okay. And that kid also has a blue shirt on just like you. And they have hair on their head just like you. And they have eyes and a nose and a mouth and hands. I'm curious on what has you shouting out the size of their body. Let's talk about that, right? So it's bringing in this conversation versus shaming them and saying, you just said something bad, right? Well, and it makes fat a four-letter word. Uh-huh. It, it, that's yeah. really what it does. Is it, it, it introduces very early on fat as a, a pejorative when, you know, folks are working to reclaim it as just a neutral body descriptor, like tall or blonde or blue eyed. I've, I've had kids in elementary school, so I've had to have these conversations. And some of the conversations I've had to have is, let's talk about the word fat and let's talk about how this is just a neutral term and it is just one part of how we describe, but 
in history and sometimes even today, that word is used in a word that to hurt people's feelings. And so I want to make sure that you don't necessarily use that word in that way. Or if you heard the word used on the playground, this is how I want you to understand that word and understand what's going on. So I've kind of wanted to make sure that I offer both so that they're not just using the word because that's what mommy's told them, but no one else has had these conversations with their kids. And I think that's a perfect approach because this is even still a debate within the weight stigma literature, you know, on what's the best terminology to use. Folks, some folks like fat, some people do not. Um, and I'm in no position to tell you what way you're supposed to feel comfortable describing your own body, body autonomy above all else. Um, so I tend to use higher and lower body weight, or if I use fat, it is in a very specific way and, and, and is a very, and it, it is designed to be slowly exposing folks to it as a neutral descriptor. And I think the bottom line goes, you don't really need to be talking about anybody's bodies on the playground. Like, let's just, also, let's just get away from all of that. So if you hear people talking about it, just distract your friends, tell them we don't need to go there, like be inclusive, include everybody. Like we just, we don't need to really be talking about that. Yeah. And it's yeah. the language conversation with respect to weight really, um, to me has such a, as a, a, a gay man has a really interesting in like, clear parallel to the use of the word queer. Um, very, very few older generations, especially the generations above mine would ever choose to self-identify as queer because it was only ever known as this pejorative that was hurled at you in the middle of a hate crime. And now it's actually the overwhelmingly preferred term for younger kids when it comes to their sexual identity that is, that is non-heterosexual. They tend to prefer queer than identifying as gay or lesbian or bi. And it's fascinating to see this shift. It's happened very rapidly, um, but it has these parallels where there are folks that really want to reclaim the word fat. And then there are the folks that have that is a, a trauma trigger because that was that was how they were denigrated and shamed and discriminated against. And that's why, the, you know, having these conversations and keeping them going in reflecting on the fact that culture is always evolving and language is always evolving is really important. Right. Woo, this is fa a fabulous conversation. I feel like we can literally keep going, but we can't because I feel like some of our listeners only have a short period of time to listen to us. So thank you. Yes. Um, but we want to wrap it up with um, allowing you to give space to any resources that you love. I know we were kind of chatting a little bit about, you know, the kid-friendly books and then letting our listeners know of where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say with respect to, you know, at least your audience in particular, three books that I really like about Diversity, not necessarily specific to, you know, body weight, um, but also kind of touch on them are um, I Like Myself um, by Karen Beaumont, uh, Listening to My Body by Gabby Garcia, and Your Body is Awesome, Body Respect for Children by Sigmund Danielsdottir. Um, and what I really love about this last book, if I am remembering correctly, one of them has a workbook at the end. It's got a message for, yes, it's this one, at the end of uh, Your Body is Awesome, there's a few pages that are a message for adults on how to engage with this book with your kids. And it's fantastic. I uh, 
love those resources. And this is also coming from someone who does not have kids, but is, you know, does a lot of work with adolescents. Um, and these are going to be like staples in my home once uh, we have kids. Um, in terms of where to find me, uh, my website is jeffreyhunger.com. And you can find me on Twitter, which is at drhunger or at drhunger. Um, that's going to be eh, 70, 30 academic to just other gifts that I post. Um, but feel free to uh, find me there. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time you. and knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That is a wrap on this episode of the Mythbuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guest's information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LeBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.